Veni, Veni, Venias, and welcome to our podcast. Good evening, and welcome to Ask a Medievalist. I'm M, the Ask portion of our program, and joining me tonight, as always, is Dr. Jesse Noose. Hello! Let me see. Last time, I believe we talked a lot about comedy. Yes. Um, from different cultures, and we decided that we were going to continue tonight talking about Hrotsvit. Yes. As we did not feel like we could do her justice in about the 10 minutes or so we wound up having left at the end of our program. So right. um, let's just dive right into it, because <laughs> I know that we, uh, we have a lot to say about Hrotsvit. Absolutely. All right. So this is picking up from physical comedy. Um, we talked about Commedia dell'arte. Um, and Lazzi, right? A Lazzo is the specific sort of physical um, comic scenario that yeah. was generally improved, um, and you would build a sort of improv plot around it. Uh, so they're great examples that we still use today, like um, the one where someone pretends to be a statue and people are looking around and the statue keeps moving and poking them or whatever, but doesn't get mm -hmm. caught, right? Every time they turn back around, it freezes. Um, there are a lot of food lotsy, which are very famous. Um, and, you know, we sort of discussed some more modern ones like Marx Brothers. Um, that is a Benny Hill, right? Yeah. That's what I was thinking is like, you always have to have the chase scene at the end. Yes. Absolutely. And play yakety sax. And that's right. definitely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Or obviously like Buster Keaton is sort of the ultimate master of. And Charlie Chaplin. I mean, they're all our different things. But Buster Keaton really is of what we would call the pratfall, right? Um, which he did did a lot. I mean, that was sort of the point mm -hmm. that he he would actually do it. If he couldn't do it, then it wasn't in the film. Yeah. Um, and sometimes he would mess up. You know, that's sort of in quotes. Like, sometimes it wouldn't work. <laughs> but then what happened instead was what would then go in the film, right? It was whatever he actually yeah. did. Um, and he broke a lot of stuff in his day. I mean, he, you know, supposedly landed on mattresses and things, but mm -hmm. there's one where he falls out like a second story window and lands on his back. And I think he actually did fracture some stuff doing that one. Wow. Yeah. So the story was where his name came from was that he, his parents were like in a touring theatr theatrical yes. company. That's how you end up with a job like this, I think. <laughs> yeah. And, uh... For whatever reason, I think they were touring with Harry Houdini. Yes. And right. at about, you know, six or eight months old, Buster Keaton fell down a flight of stairs. Mm -hmm. And they everybody rushed out and saw him just, like, sitting there kind of stunned at the bottom. Yeah. And Houdini said, that was a real buster. Yeah. Yes. And, uh... Which is... Yeah, which is also, of course, why I don't actually know or remember what his given name was, because I didn't just Google him. Because no. that is what he went by. Absolutely, Buster Keaton. But yeah, and that was his specialty for his entire life. Um, but it's really brilliant, right? And it's been copied so many times since by so many different people, right? Yeah. But that type of physical scenario absolutely is straight out of Commedia. But there are different types of clowns, which we talked about last time. So he's a specific type. Charlie Chaplin is a slightly different type. And of course, his mm -hmm. becomes known as the tramp. I mean, that's his sort of character. Um, but he is a little bit the sort of sadder clown, right? Um, yeah. And his moves are equally physical, but also very sort of balletic, right? Mm -hmm. 
And so some of the most famous ones are things like him dancing with the globe. Right? Um, so there's a little bit of a different side to the physicality yeah. that he has. Um, Even in modern times, there's some great balletic sequences where he's got like two wrenches and, you know, he's sort of twirling around. Yes. Yeah. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but in both cases, right, their goal was to tell stories really through the physicality. Um, mm-hmm. And so Buster Keaton said, right, their goal was to have as few title cards as possible. Yeah. Um, and so. I mean, this makes a lot of sense for silent films. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think when I think about um, writing for the stage, mm-hmm. which I do relatively little of, but um, that sounds very lovely and pretentious, yes. so I'll keep it. <laughs> and I think about writing for the stage, or actually when I think about writing comic strips, too. Yes. Um, one thing that I have always struggled with is that it should really be a visual medium, right? Yes. Like, comics should use pictures to tell a story, not just words. Yes. And obviously, um, in my own comics, I often have, you know, two people talking to each other about philosophy, which is a lot like what my everyday life is like. But, you know, it isn't yes. it isn't the X-Men, obviously, right? Like, it's not as fun I mean, as... Certain of the, the X-Men, uh, maybe. Well. <laughs> um, Professor Xavier. Per, yeah, or the Beast. Right, but, um, exactly. You know, it's not as fun as having um, Nightcrawler, you know, right. flooping in and out or yes. whatever. Zip, pow. Poof. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes, blip. Yeah. I mean, but yeah, that's McCloud. Scott McCloud in Understanding Comets has a whole comics, has a whole chapter on show and tell. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's sort of the point that there are certain things you do have to tell, right? Um, even Buster Keaton never eliminated title cards 100%. But you show as much as you can, right? And you know which is which. What are the things you absolutely have to have words for? What are the things you actually really, really should show. Um, yeah. And that's exactly the point, right? So, yeah, Keaton, obviously. Um, and they're all, right, Chaplin, Keaton, they're all coming out of um, the Marx Brothers, of course. They're all coming out of a vaudeville background, really, which is mm-hmm. where Buster gets his name, yeah, with Houdini. And vaudeville, of course, is very much the sort of modern descendant of things like Commedia, right? So it mm-hmm. it sort of became a, an elite art form in certain ways with people like Moliere, um, but obviously absolutely also stayed in sort of the streets and the bars, right? Um, and things like that. Um, yes. and so that side of vaudeville absolutely sticks around as well. And this is very much where a lot of modern sitcoms really get their humor, right? Um, and speaking of decolonizing, which is one of the things we've been doing, there's something very important about remembering some of that history because particularly in the U.S., but not solely in the U.S., the history of vaudeville is very closely tied to minstrelsy. Right. Mm-hmm. These two things exist together. Um, they cannot really be separated. And it means that a lot of modern things, modern comedy, modern sitcoms, right, a lot of certain modern physical comic tropes that we sort of recognize, a lot of them originated um, in very, very problematic contexts. Right? Oh, yeah. So it doesn't necessarily mean we ignore them or we stop using them, but we need to remember that there is this history. Yeah, I think, I don't remember if we actually talked about on the podcast, the Turkey and the Straw song. Right. On, you know, that you do in, you know, beginning violin lessons and also on all the ice cream vans. Yes. 
so I think I sent you the article yep. that Riza of the Wu-Tang Clan yep. has written a replacement jingle for Turkey in the Straw. Yes. Um, and I'll put up a link to the article on, on the notes. Um, it's quite a delightful little jingle. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And it's a good point because for something like that, you know, you don't need to have the original, you know, because. No. Right. <laughs> um, the only reason ice cream trucks have it is because it's presumably not in copyright. Yeah. It's but. like loud i guess you can hear it from that a ways too. away you won't think that it's like a siren right right it yeah. sounds kind of happy probably but i'm assuming like but... anything not in copyright would have worked right someone picked it um and you know it's also a reminder of things like a lot of really popular sort of nostalgic american songs mm -hmm. that's where they come from you know stephen foster wrote tons of stuff he's sort of frequently considered the quote-unquote sort of father of the american songbook right yeah um and he mostly wrote things from minstrel shows, right? And so there are a lot of songs you would never know from the song that that's where it was from. Yeah. But that is where it's from, right? And so the reminder that uh, physical comedy in Commedia, but also certainly thereafter, um, could be used both to subvert and to question um, social norms and perpetuate them, right? It can be used in both of those ways. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is actually one of those reminders, right? The people we've mentioned, Buster Keaton, Charlie Chaplin, the Marx Brothers, all in various ways subverted a lot of social mm -hmm. norms, class yeah. issues, things like this. Um, this should remind me, mm -hmm. uh, this reminds me of the songs of Tom Lehrer. Yes. He also wrote one called I Want to Go Back to Dixie. Yeah. Uh, making fun of all of the, as he called them, the Southern type song. Yes. Right. Um yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so it can be used in that way, but then, of course, you also have the other side where it can be used to perpetuate all of those same social norms, mm -hmm. right? Um, so social norms are also just, you know, systemic prejudice, all of these things. Anyway, so um, those that sort of double-edged sword when it comes to comedy, right? When it comes to theater in general, that a lot of it can go either way. Right, Not, people who work in the arts tend to assume <laughs> that they are subverting, that they are critiquing, <laughs> right? Yes. But this is not always the case. There is art that perpetuates systemic prejudice mm -hmm. and all those things. Um, that being said, right, it is important that even when we do go back in time, I think a lot of one of the things people frequently expect. Right, when they look at the Middle Ages or the classical period, um, is that you will find things that do not agree with modern ideas. Mm -hmm. And while, of course, that is the case, that is not the only thing you find, right? So um, I think people are less surprised when you go back to the classical era and you find sort of modern ideas because we think of ourselves as very much based on like classical Greece and Rome. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but people are more surprised about the Middle Ages because we've been sort of taught to think of the Middle Ages as, you know, backwards and everything else. Yeah, extremely straight-laced and, um, right. you know, anal, Yeah, I guess. <laughs> Which is very unfair and very, yeah. very untrue, right? So we have talked before on the show about the extent to which you can certainly have things that are like triple X rated. I mean, you know, and 
friars and monks are sometimes writing these things. I mean, it's not necessarily mm-hmm. considered taboo in quite the way we consider these things today. Right. Right. Um, but in a- I think sometime we're going to have to, we're going to talk about, um, uh, my brain just went blank. <laughs> <laughs> the musical piece, our title is from it. Oh, Carmina Burana. Carmina Burana. Yeah. Okay. Yes. We're going to have to talk about Carmina Burana, which has some incredible songs about, you know, lovely young ladies in the springtime by written by people who were about to become monks, I yes. think, largely. Yeah. Oh, well, so Carmina Burana, of course, the, the music is modern, obviously. We don't yeah. have the music, the medieval music, um, but the text itself is definitely, obviously, medieval. Um, and Burana, that's the the Latin name for the Benedict, mo- the Benedictine monastery in Baron. Right. So mm-hmm. they're, so Burana. Um, and this manuscript is from there. Right. And Carmina yeah. means songs in Latin. Right. So these are the songs from this Benedictine monastery, this manuscript in this Benedictine monastery. Um, yes. and that's what that means. Carmina Burana, the songs yeah. of this manuscript from this monastery. Um, and yes. they are about things, including like, Gambling and oh everything, sex, you know, rites of spring, mocking, mocking people's morals and yeah. drinking and mm-hmm. all sorts of good stuff. Yeah, I mean the famous, you know the the manuscript is huge, um, and yeah. the plays in it. There are all sorts of things in it. Um, the plays are fun; uh, they're religious. But then you have this cycle of texts of songs that Orff put to music. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later. Um, and the cycle that he chose to put to... I'm calling it a cycle because he made it one, basically, right? But the texts that mm-hmm. he chose to put to music are, you know, one could say sort of pagan, essentially, right? Oh, Fortuna. That's, right, the goddess Fortune and her wheel, yeah. right? That's the big, famous, epic moment. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, right? There's absolutely this reminder of how important a lot of these things are. And, you know, this manuscript is much less um, suggestive than a lot of medieval manuscripts. Right? (laughs) I mean, yes, you know, Chaucer definitely has words that most authors wouldn't use today. Um, And yet, Mm -hmm. he is also, he's body, right? But by his own, by the standards of his day, he is yeah. definitely not, you know, there are texts that are drinking song level, you know, what today gets called sometimes locker room talk. Yes. <laughs> right? You know, yes. and noblemen would write these things. I mean, it's an art form, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, yes, we'll definitely talk more about some of these in the future. But um, it's worth pointing out that the first named playwright that we have in the Middle Ages in Europe. So I'm qualifying this, right? (laughs) So in Mm -hmm. medieval Western Europe, um, the first named playwright that we get is Hrotsvit. And she's known as Hrotsvit of Gandersheim. Um, You can find her under a lot of variations of this name. So Mm -hmm. Hrotsvit, Hrotsvita, Rotsvita, sometimes without the H. Um, But Hrotsvit of Gandersheim, 935 to 10,001, right? <laughs> so she's actually, she lives over the, the turn sort of of the previous millennium. Exciting. Yeah. So she's, you know, a thousand years ago, 
This is a long time ago. So where's Gandersheim? Yes, so Gandersheim is in Germany. It's a monastery. It would probably, a lot of people would probably call it a nunnery. And by a lot of people, I mean, if you're just talking about it, people might assume it should be called a nunnery because it's women. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Gandersheim is women. Right. Um, But the structure, it is a fully structured, completely autonomous living situation. Okay. So in that, so it is a monastery um, and it is ruled by the abbess. Right. So you have an, um, because it's all women. So you don't have an abbot. You have an abbess. Mm -hmm. Um, And the abbess of Gandersheim, um, who was not Hrotsvi. Hrotsvi just lived there. Right. (laughs) Um, But the, the abbess of Gandersheim, Um, was essentially the ruler of an autonomous principality. And this is sort of rare and unusual. Um, So we're in what is essentially Germany. These are the German-speaking lands. But Gandersheim is autonomous. The abbess rules it, right? And this convent, right? We'll call it a convent. um, Because, again, nuns. But I don't want to undersell the sort of administrative structure of this place right right um but it had its own courts so its own like judicial courts right they heard wow. their own cases also um it had its own army right so okay this is sort of not as unusual in the middle ages generally in the sense that if a lord or lady or you know a ruler a ruler of a mm-hmm. certain area <laughs> um can raise an army from the people who work their land and things like this right right um and st- Get a bunch of peasants and give them pointy sticks and say, point this end at those guys. Right. And this is march. how England goes to fight the French and so on. Right? Yes. Which, of course, we see in Shakespeare frequently. Yeah. <laughs> and the sort of famous moments when Falstaff rounds up people that he knows will buy their way out of service. Mm-hmm. Right? So they'll pay him not to be drafted. And then he goes around and just finds people who are basically homeless so that he can get yeah. them killed off and just keep all the money. Yeah. P- which people definitely did. I mean, it's Shakespeare being very sort of cynical, but it definitely happened. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> Gandersheim is not that kind of place, right? Gandersheim is not, fal- not Falstaffian. Um, so it's this sort of amazing entity, right? Um, but they do have their own army. Uh, they had their own coinage. So they're empowered to sort of mint their own coins, um, they had their own representative in the Imperial Assembly. Mm-hmm. So this is the uh, German Empire at the time, right? Wow. And they were directly under the authority and the protection of the Papal See. That's S-E-E, right? The seat of the Papacy. Mm-hmm. So, of course, the Pope is himself a ruler <laughs> mm-hmm. um, of much more than just the Vatican in the Middle Ages. We've talked about this before. The Pope is also the king of Vatican City. That is well, yes. I learned that. But he... It's a elected non-hereditary monast- uh, monarchy. Yes. Yeah. Um, but he, obviously, in the Middle Ages, he ruled way more than just Vatican City. Yeah. Yes. Um, but yes, he's an elected monarch. Um, and so he he is the only person directly above the abbess. Right? That's who hmm. she answers to. No interference. That's not a bad situation. No, it's fantastic, right? So no interference from bishops, which is really important. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Because um, we're quoting some things here, by the way. Um, So Fritjo Bertini, we're quoting his book on Rotsvit. We'll put this in the notes. Um, We're also quoting Peter Dronke, who was mentioned before, I think. 
and we'll probably mention again, mm-hmm. women writers. Um, but he adds that in Hrotsvit's lifetime, Gandersheim was a small, proudly independent principality ruled by women. Hmm. So this is, obviously, this is a really important place in a lot of ways, right? It's a sort of autonomous female collective. I kind of want to quote Monty Python here, where Dennis, the peasant, right, is making all these comments about how they're an autonomous collective. Um, <laughs> but, but this kind of is, right? This is an autonomous female collective, and it is ruled by a woman, which, of course, again, in the Middle Ages was not actually that unusual. There are lots of female rulers in the Middle Ages. So we do want to remind people of that. There are today as well, but obviously, um, you know, in the Middle Ages, if you were sort of the last kinsperson left standing or... Sometimes just if you were the first one born, you got to take over, even if you're a woman. <laughs> there are certain things about the modern era that sure. has made it maybe harder for some women to take over. Just saying. All right. So yeah. um, so Gandersheim, but nonetheless, right, it's important that Gandersheim is ruled by a woman. This is an all-female sort of collective, basically, because it is a convent. Um, and the final sort of aspect of this puzzle, and of course, why it was allowed to be like this, um, is because everyone who did sort of belong to Gandersheim, um, with the exception of the servants, right? So everyone Mm -hmm. who lived there was part of the community, um, was of noble birth. This is obviously important, um, because they essentially brought their money in, right? That's how you maintain a place like this. But again, we've talked sort of about Benedictines and similar orders before, right? A lot of orders in the Middle Ages did depend on people being of noble birth. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's one of the things the mendicants were sort of against in some ways, um, that anyone could join. I mean, this idea anyone should be able to join, which is why poverty became a vow. Probably one of the the things that was most surprising for me as we talked about it was like, if you want to be a monk, you got to have cash. Yes. Ready yeah. to go. Yeah. Um, so again, right, that's not necessarily uncommon, but um, the idea that they all are of noble birth, um, mm-hmm. this is the important though, right? Some took vows as nuns, right? So that's the convent part, of course, but some remained canonesses. Um, and this mm-hmm. is a word we've come across before, but in this instance, it does mean living a religious life, but not taking the vows. Okay. Right. Which meant you could technically leave at any time, right? You weren't bound there for life, necessarily. Right. And Hrotsvit was one of the canonesses. Right. So um, she was presumably, right, a... She was noble. I mean, she had to be noble. She was presumably a sort of distant relative of the royal family. Mm-hmm. The abbess during her lifetime um, was directly related to the royal family, which, of course, is, okay. again, how this works. Because remember, she doesn't have to answer to them. She doesn't have to answer to the emperor. <laughs> so mm-hmm. the fact that she's usually like his sister or something is presumably sure. one of the ways they all get along, I guess. Um, but... You know, I am emphasizing this. I think we've mentioned Christine de Pizan on the show before, some time ago, who's a wonderful, you know, you could call her proto-feminist, but we might as well just call her feminist writer, uh, medieval feminist writer in France, um, some hundreds of years after Hertzfeet. But um, she dies before Joan of Arc, so she never, she doesn't find out that Joan of Arc also dies, basically, right? Mm -hmm. Um, She's excited to see a female hero sort of come along and save France. 
Um, but she has, you know, she sure. wrote all sorts of great stuff. Um, and one of the things, she, one of the books she wrote that's famous, Christine de Pizan, um, is City of Ladies. And it's this sort of riff on, again, this idea of um, men <laughs> usually thinking that important things, right, important communities only required men, right? Um, and Christine de Pizan did not see things that way. Right. So she comes, as I said, some hundreds of years after Hrotsvit. But it's worth pointing, and also, of course, she's French, right? And Hrotsvit, here we are in German-speaking areas. Um, but it is worth pointing out that in a lot of ways, Hrotsvit does live in this community that could be referred to <laughs> um, very much as a city of ladies, right? That is really what this is. Okay. So there's something sort of really interesting about that. It's also really important that Hrotsvit, although she lives in this religious community, um, there's obviously a lot of elements of sort of female education um, and empowerment, basically, mm -hmm. particularly because you didn't have to take the full set of vows to live there, right? So you could right. be a single woman and live there with your servants, with other women, you know, being educated and doing educated things um, in a sort of setting that was far more common for men, right, in a monastery, Mm -hmm. um, but you could be a woman and do this without actually having to take the full vows that made you a nun, right? So if at some point you wanted to leave or you decided you'd like to get married and have kids, you could mm -hmm. go if you were a canonist, right? And no stigma would be attached. This is again from Peter Drunkie. But there's something really important about that, right? So frequently when Hrotsvit does come up in uh, medieval theater history or just theater history generally... She's usually called a nun, which she actually probably wasn't. <laughs> um, and she is, I think, for that reason, frequently sort of looked down on. Right? There's this idea of her being hmm. a sort of silly religious woman. You know, women are frequently viewed as silly anyway by certain powers that be. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, in this case, a nun, somehow the, the ideas that frequently get attached to nuns don't necessarily get attached to men like Augustine, who was a monk, mm -hmm. right? Right. But people don't view him as silly for being religious. Yes. What is that? I don't know. Anyway, so this sense of Hrotsvit, right, as a sort of simple woman or whatever, like all of those things are just BS, right? Okay. So she's this. She's clearly a brilliant woman. She's noble. She's educated. Um, she probably did spend her, before she got to Kandersheim, she probably spent some of the earlier part of her time at court, Right? Mm -hmm. With the royal family. Um, and she continued to communicate them when she was at, at Gandersheim. She continued to communicate with them, and um, one member of the royal family, at least, was her patron. So she's writing okay. for the royal family. Um, cool. Yeah. And so she's writing plays. Right? Um, and this is important. One of the things that she found in her education, <laughs> um, and probably also at the royal court, which apparently liked theater and enjoyed staging plays. Um, this wouldn't necessarily be the full sort of staging that we think of today, right? Where people would have their lines memorized and costumes and set and whatever. It'd be more like staged readings, right? Um, okay. So they'd be sort of enacted, but of course, you know, by the court themselves. So these are sort of amateur performances put on, you know, by these people. Um, mm -hmm. So staged, but not, you know, necessarily quite as fully staged. Um, and one of the favorite playwrights at the time was Terence, 
who of course is a Roman playwright from okay. North Africa, probably Carthage ish. Yeah, I think we've we've talked about him before. Yes, I think so. Yeah. I mean I he's so. one of the famous he's the famous sort of comic Roman playwright. Right? There's Plautus mm-hmm. and there's Terence. Um and so Terence is from North Africa, probably Carthage. Um sort of one 95 or 85 to 159, probably, uh, BCE. Um, he was bought as a slave um, by a Roman senator who took him to Rome and educate him, educated him, mm-hmm. um, and then was very impressed by his ability and freedom. Right. So Terence is North African, and as, as I said, right, probably Carthage, so people discuss his race a lot, unclear, but at least North African, right? Um, okay. And he was brought to Rome as a slave, but freed because um, of his ability as a playwright, essentially, and writer. Um, and he wrote these sort of incredibly famous, definitely sort of body comedies um, that use a lot of physical humor, physical comedy, right? All of the things we have been talking about. So he's a favorite through the Middle Ages. His Latin is great. Comedy, of course. I mean, comedy doesn't really go out of style, right? Sure. The themes that drive tragedies don't either, but the way we feel about them can change, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, sometimes we want, you know, plays about love, and sometimes what plays about war, and right? Tragedy can sort of change. Comedies tend to kind of have certain themes that stick around, right? Physical comedy usually always works, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Sex, people sleeping around. These are sort of the staples, right? Um, and they still are. I mean, this is still what comedies are about, right? Yeah. I mean, as we've talked about um, everything through the Comedia and even the uh, the Kyogen, I've been impressed at how well so much of it just translates without needing to be translated, really. Yes. Like, yeah, you just, absolutely. You just go, oh, yeah, I get it. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah. Yep. Yes. Yeah, seeing people fall down, seeing people, you know, go off in couples. I mean, yeah, these things immediately translate into any language, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely. So so he's a favorite. Um, Latin is, of course, the educated language in Europe at the time, right? It's the sort of universal language in Europe, if you're educated. And so, you know, that's why Terence, again, is a sort of favorite. Um, and so Hrotsvit decides... <laughs> Um, that she is going to write plays in the style of Terence, but instead of, you know, prostitutes and things like this, um, she's going to have female heroines who are Christian martyrs. Hmm. Right. Okay. Um, and her basic point is that women, first of all, can be the heroes, <laughs> and also that women don't have to just be like prostitutes basically yeah. right i mean we all I mean <laughs> i like the idea i'm um i'm hung up on the fact that martyrdom seems a little bit less funny than other yes. you know yes maybe there's there's something inherently funny about prostitution that you don't necessarily get with the change to martyrdom <laughs> yes um but of course her point is um and we would say today, right, that you have sort of the dichotomy of the the Virgin the Madonna and the, whore. And the yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely, right, yeah, the Madonna and the Magdalene are the two, right, that split. Mm-hmm. And Hrotsvit is trying to complicate that a bit, 
And her basic point is that, first of all, women aren't all sluts, right? <laughs> this is, this is a key enough. point that I feel is still important. It is worth mm-hmm. making. It is definitely worth a reminder, right? But secondly, she actually does really complicate the idea of what it means to be a virgin or a martyr, right? Um, okay. These women are much more interesting and human and fun <laughs> than we might otherwise give them credit for, right? Hmm. And essentially her point is you can be a good woman and a hero and still sort of be attainable in some right? That that's a goal people, yeah. anyone could attain. Not anyone has okay. to be a martyr, right? But anyone can be like these women, right? I'm guessing living in a community full of, you know, nuns and canonesses that she may have based this on personal experience. Yes. Absolutely. Right? She personally knows that you can have a lot of women who are good women. In her case, they are not martyrs, right? They love Terrence, which means they enjoy a good sex joke, right? But Mm -hmm. they also are not, you know, all the things that people say about women, like, oh, well, she just couldn't take a joke. No, there's a difference between something that is funny and something that is offensive and demeaning, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And Rotsvita is sort of out to discuss this. But also, while sort of taking on this form, right, from Terrence, this sort of dramatic form, (laughs) that is fantastic, but that she does see sort of putting women in these specific positions that aren't necessarily fair to women. Mm -hmm. Right? Okay. Um, So this is sort of her, yeah, her point, right? Um, So, yeah, the fact she lives, of course, in this female collective is definitely sort of important. Um. And in her, she has some sort of introductory letters and things that she wrote about her own stuff, right? Her own plays um, that she wrote sort of to her patron and things like this when she'd send them off. Um, They were probably performed, again, as staged readings, but Mm -hmm. um, they're frequently called closet dramas, which is a term I don't even want to bring up, but I am going to because I want to have brought it up and denounced it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um. This is one of those other things that comes about about Hrotsvita, along with her sort of being a nun, um, is this idea that her plays were just closet drama, which is the sense, which means, closet drama just means a play that isn't necessarily written for performance. It's written to be read. Oh. Right? And, okay. In your bedroom. Um, or whatever, right? But that is not, A, that is not what these are, right? She did write them and send them off to the court where they probably received stage readings, right? So that's number one. They were absolutely meant to be performed. And you can tell that by the way she wrote them. And we'll go a little more into that in a sec. But number two, mm-hmm. this is probably the more important aspect of this. When people call these closet dramas, what they usually mean is that Hrotsvit as a nun, right? And they have all these stereotypes in their minds of, you know, demure, simple, cloistered woman, which she isn't really any of these things, first of all, because she's a canonist, but also secondly, because that's not sort of how the women at Gandersheim were. Mm-hmm. Um, but they have this idea that you couldn't possibly have meant for these things to be performed because that would be profane, right? Right. And how would you profane these religious things by having them be performed? She would never mean such a thing. Um, and sometimes they go so far as to suggest that she didn't even know that Terrence's plays were meant to be performed, which is absolutely <laughs> ridiculous what? and completely not true. Okay. And we know that there were staged reading of the, readings of these things at court, Probably when she was there growing up, 
or sort of in her young teens or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, But definitely she knew about this, and that is why she sent off her plays to court to be staged. Okay, so it's not closet drama. She knew what performance was. She intended them to be performed, all of those things. Okay, (sighs) so having got that over, passed. All right, a quick few things about her writing. First of all, um, she says that she writes in the heroic meter. Okay. Uh, what she means by that is she's writing in, not just in Latin, of course, right? Uh, but dactylic hexameter. Um, wow. Yeah. Okay. Right, which is the meter that is used for all the famous heroic poems. Mm-hmm. Um, Virgil, obviously, is the big one. Um, Homer, you know, in Greek, of course. But that's the point, so- right? Heroes. Heroes are written about in dactylic hexameter. Mm-hmm. So heroes like Aeneid, right? So she is using dactylic hexameter to write about her female heroes. Sure. So to break that down for people who haven't been in English class in a long time, uh, hexameter, yes. of course, is like six feet per line. Um, yeah. line. And then a dactyl is stressed, one stressed syllable plus two unstressed. Yeah. I think. Dun, dun, dun. So you would you would get two dactyls per line, right? Because that would be six feet. No, that's no, you a whole six foot. dactyls per. So you get six dactyls per line. Yes. Okay. Although right. actually, so, dactylic hexameter is five dactyls, and you end with a two syllable, um, either which can be a f- number of different things as long as it's two syllables. Mm-hmm. But there are a few different feet. It can be like a spot okay. or something. Yeah. Um, but it's five dactyls and then a yeah. A, a lot of people might be more familiar with uh, iambic pentameter, which is what Shakespeare did all the time, yep. which people, you know, in English, it's a very natural feeling kind of rhythm. Yes. Um, dactyls yeah. are are hard. Yeah, they work in <laughs> like, Latin. I give brilliantly. her super props. Like, that's... <laughs> yes. <laughs> maybe it's easier in Latin, but oh yeah. my gosh, that that's... Yeah. Yeah. They don't work so well in English. It's why we don't use them in English. Um, and you'll notice also hexameter, right? So six feet and pentameter, yeah. five feet. So not just is it a change to the iamb, but it's also um, a change of feet. Yeah. yeah. So um, there's, you know, um, my favorite, <laughs> my favorite iamb, to be fair, isn't actually Shakespeare. It's Marlowe. Um, but the easiest example was this the face that launched a thousand chips. <laughs> Yes. That's it, right. Was I'll this. allow that. That's a great one. Yeah. That's a great um, one. So if you count them, an iamb is, was this? Right, da-da. So that's the iamb, and there are five, was this? The face that launched a thousand chips. Boom. Yes. Right? <laughs> um, great line. Also, of course, it's, mm-hmm. you know, about Helen of Troy. So is relevant to this idea of heroes and heroic, right? But yes, yeah, so in English, um, the heroic meter is probably um pentameter because of shakespeare honestly um although people mm-hmm. have certainly done other things um but that's probably our um best uh dactyls you can find dactylic poems in english but not usually in hexameter <laughs> there's oh. actually a particular type of poem called a double dactyl yeah is this like charge of light brigade um, is- no, because um, it does. They are, yeah, yeah. They're they're largely comic. They begin with a um, nonsense word. Oh, yeah, yeah. Often, yeah. often they are about um, 
something scientific or sort of weird. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, I remember during a tornado um, having a bunch of people in my basement, including, I think, my mom and yours. Oh, boy. And composing wow. double dactyls to um, oh. take everybody's mind off the... Uh, off of the uh, problem at hand, which was that, you know, there was a tornado. Right. An example given on Wikipedia is Higgledy-Piggledy Benjamin Harrison, 23rd president, was, and as such, served between Cleveland's and, save for this trivial idiosyncrasy, didn't do much. Ha. So they're all, they're all kind of like that. There's one website that you can find. I guess I'll throw a... Um, <laughs> I'll throw a link in the notes because why not? And it's uh, a UW page about double dactyls hosted in the math department. What? Um, <laughs> I mean, the math department yes. would make sense, I guess. I guess so. Um, That's hilarious. I have no idea where this came from. Uh, you know, there, but there's some good ones, both about things like cosmic background radiation and... Uh, the one about Oedipus. <laughs> um, yeah. Higgledy-piggledy Oedipus Tyrannos murdered his father, used mama for sex. This mad debauch not so incomprehensibly left poor Jocasta and Oedipus Rex. Wow. That ruined yeah. everything. Yeah. So it's a fun, but it's a lot less, um, what's the word? Majestic than... <laughs> Than the iambic pentameter in English, yes. which tends to be something poets use for sonnets. And yes. in modern English, iambic pentameter, people who do that do it because they're showing off, like, this is what Shakespeare did, yeah. and look how cool I am. But and if you read, I mean, his sonnets, which is obviously the, you know, mm -hmm. poet place. I mean, all of his verse works beautifully in it, I, I want to say. You know, yeah. Shakespeare writes verse, um, the quality of mercy is not strained. You know, it, it yeah. absolutely sounds like natural speech, um, a, you know, fancy, amazing natural speech, but you don't necessarily hear unless it rhymes. You know, there's certain plays where things do rhyme um, or will rhyme at the ends, right? You will get little couplets yeah. at the end. And of course, the sonnets rhyme so you can hear it. That's one. Um, but even there, right, he has a lot of them where it's sort of invisible in a way mm -hmm. that's brilliant. Um, and that's. Just, that's really sort of the point of the dactylic hexameter. Poetry in sort of Greek and Latin works a lot like, you know, unrhymed poetry in English, really. But it is different. It is a different sort of structure, right? It's, it's a little hard to mm -hmm. explain. But <laughs> the fact that Homer, right, so the Iliad and the Odyssey, and then Virgil, of course, the Aeneid, um, the fact that they use this meter that really can't be used in English um, mm -hmm. is in some ways a fascinating reminder of how different languages are, no matter how good a translator, right? They're brilliant translations of these things. Yeah. But it's different, right? And honestly, reading Homer in the original is very surprising, I have to say, especially if you've read Virgil first. Virgil is what we are brought up to think of poetry, epic poetry, as being. Yeah. And Homer is very different. But the, the meter works equally, right? Um, so there's something interesting, though. And 
dactyls especially, there is a sort of um, openness to them because not everything actually has to be a dactyl, right? You have to have mm-hmm. six feet. The fifth absolutely has to be a dactyl, <laughs> um, but the sixth foot isn't. Mm-hmm. Pretty much never is, right? It's usually, as I said, a spande, maybe a trochee. And so you have this sort of, it's a very interesting metrical line. Longfellow does have an actual poem. Evangeline is in Dactylic Hexameter. But, you know, it is very uncommon. Mm-hmm. Here's the, here, just a couple, right? So Evangeline. Um, this is the forest primeval, the murmuring pines and the hemlocks, bearded with moss and in garments green, indistinct in the twilight, stand like druids of eld with voices sad and prophetic. It's a great sort of, okay. you know. Yeah. But it, it is unusual, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Charge of the Light Brigade uses two dactyls, um, and he does it so that it sounds like the Light Brigade charging. Um, okay. So this is a sort of double thing. Um, half a league, half a league, half a league onward. All in the Valley of Death rode the 600. Forward the Light Brigade, charge for the guns, he said. Into the Valley of Death rode the 600. Right? So the meter is driving the charge. Yeah. Um, It does sound kind of like hoof beats a little bit. Um, Yeah. My favorite. I think a gallop is a three beat gait. Yes. Actually. So that works. Exactly. My favorite personal one like that uh, is the destruction of Sennacherib by Byron, um, which is actually it's Anapests, which is also like the dactyl. It's three syllables, um, but it's sort of the inverse of the dactyl. Right. The dactyl is the long short, short, and this is the short, long, long. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and as the Assyrian came down like the wolf on the fold, and his cohorts were gleaming in purple and gold, and the sheen of their spears was like stars on the sea, when the blue wave rolls nightly on deep Galilee. Okay, I have definitely yes. heard that before. It's fantastic, it's brilliant, you hear the hoofbeats, yeah. um, but also it's absolutely Byron showing off that he can write a poem in English in Anapests, because mm-hmm. whoever heard of such a thing, right? Um, all right, so I think we have made our point about how important meter is to the meaning of what you're writing. <laughs> yes. Um, so Hrotsvit specifically calls it the heroic meter. I mean, she actually says that, right? That's what she calls it. Dactylic mm-hmm. hexameter is the heroic meter because it's been used, right, by Homer and by Virgil, um, and she is using it for these women, right? I mean, if you're if you're gonna write in uh, Latin, you go for it. Exactly. Right. So she is also you know, showing off, we could just say, same as Byron, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) She's doing her thing. Yeah. Um, This is also, by the way, in one of these introductions, the only reason we actually know her German name, right? Mm -hmm. Hertzvi. Because she um, says, she calls herself, specifically, the strong voice of Gandersheim. Hmm. Um, which is a pun on her name. So there are a couple puns going on here. <laughs> One of them is a sort of pun on, presumably, um, John the Baptist. So St. John the Baptist is famously, right, in Latin, he's the vox clementis. He's the voice crying in the wilderness. This oh, okay. is in Mark 1-3. Um, and... So the, right, and her in Latin, she says, right, that she is, um, clamor validus gandishamensis. So, hmm. um, 
the strong voice, right? But so she, the that sort of crying, right? That crying, you know, <laughs> announcing whatever, right? The strong voice. Um, so she, there's a little bit of an interesting parallel there, right? John the Baptist in the wilderness, proceed at Gandersheim, right? Doing her thing. But also in Old Saxon, which is the Germanic language we're talking about here, uh, hrot mm-hmm. meant loud, so that's the clamor. Um, and suet, suet, meant strong, validus. So that's where we get her name, right? Hrot suet. <laughs> hmm. Right? So her name, she's broken her name into this pun, right? The strong voice. Right. Um, but also sort of reminding us of John the Baptist, who was also the patron saint of Gandersheim, by the way. So that's why. All right. right? <laughs> so that is an excellent pun. Yes. So she's going all the way. Yeah. All right. Um, so for my favorite example of why she is part of our physical comedy tour, right? <laughs> um, we have here um, a play that is frequently called Dulcetius by scholars. Um, Dulcetius being the sort of main male character in this play. However, I think I spot a problem you're about to bring up. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> right. Uh, Hrotsvied herself called this play uh, The Passion of the Holy Virgins, Agape, Kaenia, and Hirena. Uh, that means love, purity, and peace, by the way. Agape, mm-hmm. um, Ir- Irene, of course, Hirena, peace, Agape's love. Um, so, Kaenia's purity. All right, so that's her title for the play. But um, yeah, most scholars call it Dulcetius. It's frequently mentioned as Dulcetius. Um, Peter Drunk actually comments on this. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, she named all of her plays after sort of the female heroes, but scholars have okay. tended to not name them that way. <laughs> Interestingly. Yes. Ah, um, yes. And honestly, if scholars were going to name this play after just one character to make the title shorter, they would call it The Passion of the Holy Virgin Herena who's ultimately sort of the mm-hmm. lead heroine. Um, so, yes, there's obviously, obviously, obviously something gendered, not just about ignoring what Hrotsvit called her plays, but also about renaming them after the guy who is the main guy, but isn't the main character at all. Right. I mean, he's only in a small part of the play. It's a very short yeah. play, by the way. I just want to throw that out to everyone. It's like five pages, right? These are short sort of farcical scenes that she's writing. Mm-hmm. Um all right, so the general point here, <laughs> um, Hrotsvit has said, right, um, this is the full quote where she calls herself the strong voice. This is the translation. Uh, she says, I, the strong voice of Gandersheim, have not refused to imitate him in writing, whom others laud in reading, meaning Terence, so that in mm. the selfsame form of composition in which the shameless acts of lascivious women were phrased, the laudable chastity of sacred virgins be praised. All right. So this is her comment. That being said, um, lascivious women is a tongue in cheek sort of comment here from Hrotsvit, uh, because lascivia could, of course, mean sort of lewd, licentious, mm-hmm. um, but could also mean sort of playful, sportive, petulant. Um, and in this play, our sort of lead women are called um, lasciviae puellae. So lascivious girls um, by one of the men in the play, uh, Count Sasinus, who's one of the other sort of male villains 
and this is a really sort of important commentary, right? Hrotsvit is in some ways reclaiming this term, right? So it's not, yes. she's not saying that she's against the sex in Terence, right? But she's reminding us that women deserve a lot more than that, you know. Um, and also that the ways in which men use that term, when men call women lascivious, is actually a commentary about the men saying it and not necessarily about the, the women, right? And we mm-hmm. can think of, I don't know how many modern examples, oh, yes. sadly, <laughs> of women being called all sorts of terrible things, you know, the B word, the C word, the whatever else words. I mean, I think this is why I have a t-shirt that says nasty woman on it. Yes. Probably. Exactly. Right? <laughs> um, and so she is kind of reclaiming this term, right? Mm-hmm. Um, for her characters are lascivious, not in the way the men mean, right? Um, but in the sense that they are independent, right? Yeah. They're their own sort of playful, independent, brilliant, you know, <laughs> brilliant women. They've got their own minds. Mm-hmm. All right. So these women, we can probably see this coming, right? So they're Christian and they're actually, we'll sort of put some of this in the footnotes, but um, they're three really minor characters from a different sort of saint's life <laughs> that Hurt's Feet knew. Um, and so she's sort of fastened on these three characters. Um, and what happens to them, this is obviously Rome, right? Uh, so she puts it sort of, you know, right after the year zero. Um, the women are told they have to, you know, leave Christianity um, or they will be put okay. to death, etc., etc. Um, they refuse, of course, Dulcetius, um, who's the sort of governor, right, who's in charge, um, he locks them up in a room next to the kitchen. Mm-hmm. Um, he decides, you know, before putting them to death or anything like this, he is going to molest, shall we say, these three women, because he is the sort of man who, you know, mm-hmm. does that when he gets the chance. Um, men don't come out super well <laughs> in this play. <laughs> Um, so they're locked up in this room next to the kitchen Um, they've refused to change their minds he decides he's going to go as I said let us say molest them not necessarily to get them to change their minds but because why not you know he's going to kill them anyway he doesn't care Mm -hmm. so what happens is a miracle of some kind drives him kind of into an illusion Mm -hmm. so instead of going into the room next to the kitchen he goes into the kitchen and there's a whole scene that is mostly physical. So as I said, this is where the Lazzi come in, right? The sort of physical uh-huh. comedy of the scene. The women are ostensibly locked in the scene next to him, or in the room next to him. This is how you know also that it was definitely given, and she saw it in her head as being given, a truly mm-hmm. sort of staged performance, right? Yeah. Because this section has to be staged. Um, the women yeah. are, in some form, shown to be next door, and they are watching him through a hole in the door, you know, like a little window mm-hmm. in the door. These are big medieval wooden doors, right? So they got little windows in them. Sure. Um, and they can see him in the kitchen. Um, and he is molesting, shall we say, the pots and pans. <laughs> um, this is kind of out of American Pie or whatever. Yeah. And yeah. rolling around in them. And, you know, they know exactly what he's doing. And they're talking about it, right? They're sort of, as they witness it and watch him doing it, and as we watch him doing it, they are kind of giving us the, the commentary. Right. Mm. And they say he clearly thinks he's in here with us and he does not Mm -hmm. realize that he is not in here with us. He thinks he's hugging, in quotes, (laughs) pots and pans. 
Yes. As though they were us. All right. So after he has finished in the kitchen, shall we say, he comes back out and he's covered in soot. This is a medieval kitchen. Mm -hmm. So he is now completely covered. Um, And obviously this would have overtones in a modern performance. You'd have to do something slightly different that it does not have in a medieval performance at the time. Right. Um, when blackface isn't a thing in quite the same way, right? Um, so he comes out, and the comparison, of course, is with him as a devil from hell, right? He, mm-hmm. the kitchen, of course, is hot. It's horrible. It's frequently compared to hell in various sort of metaphoric ways. Um, kitchens in nice houses were removed from the house. Yeah. Right? They were sort of somewhere far away from where everyone actually lived, so mm-hmm. that all the smoke and all the heat and everything else could get out. Yeah. Right? You would have had a lot of open fires and stuff yes. like that sort of yeah. thing. Absolutely. Right? And everything, of course, you know, we say oven-baked pizza. Well, everything was oven-baked back then, and there was a lot of soot. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so he's basically, right, he's the devil who's escaped out of hell. Um, his men at the door, the soldiers don't recognize him. <laughs> And eventually, of course, you know, he gets it cleared up. But now he's so angry and so sort of upset at being made fun of and being tricked, right? He's absolutely Mm -hmm. intent on just getting these women punished, and that's it. So some other people take over to punish them, and um, they're thrown in a furnace. Okay. So we get, of course, another comparison to hell. Um, Agape and Kenya die, but they are not burned, Hmm. right? Um, and this is, of course, a miracle. This is also comment on their virginity, right? They're untouched mm-hmm. by the flames of passion, you know, by the male passions that surround them on every side by all these terrible men. Sure. Cannot touch them. Um, but the fact that they die is seen as the reason this is a comedy, of course. <laughs> it's sort of Chekhovian, right? Chekhov considered his plays comedies. I figured that's because he was crazy. I was about to say. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, Russian. no. Okay, well, yes, I mean, (laughs) (laughs) yes, the the sort of stereotypical Russian sense of comedy as being not quite the rest of Europe's sense of comedy. Yeah. Um, But no, I mean, because it's real life, right? Mm -hmm. Um, In this case, though, Hrotsvi does mean for it in a more sense that we would consider comic, right? Which is to say happy, Um, because Mm -hmm. they're allowed to escape the perils around them, right? Right. The flames of lust. And they get to be saints. Yeah, they get to be saints and they get to go to heaven. Go directly to... Right. Yes, absolutely. So that's why that's happening. Yeah. Unfortunately, right, Hirena is still left alone on Earth. Um, she's told what happened to her sisters. You know, they're like, she's the youngest, so she'll probably break the easiest. So look at what we did to your sisters. Mm-hmm. Ha ha. And she's like, what do you mean, ha ha? I mean, they're great, right? <laughs> they were untouched, obviously... Mm-hmm. You know, now they're saints, basically. She doesn't quite say that, of course. but And so then she's threatened with being sent to a brothel um, if she doesn't comply, right? Mm-hmm. And comply means both, of course, denounce Christianity, but also probably sleep with the next guy in line, right? Sure. And the threat is not just the brothel itself, but that if she gets sent to a brothel, mm-hmm. right, and all the things happen to her that we would expect would happen to her at a brothel... Um, that then she would not be allowed to join her sisters, right? She would not be mm-hmm. part of the virgin choir in heaven. Um, and so right. this is where we get to what is the best line <laughs> in this play. And uh, Katharina Wilson, whose translation is the one I teach, um, translated it as, quote, 
Lust deserves punishment, but forced compliance the crown. Um, we'll give the Latin in the okay. footnotes. Um, but essentially, right, um, the Latin means, right, that lust sort of, uh, Wilson says, deserves punishment. Um, but the Latin could also be read to say sort of that lust produces or begets punishment. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but compulsion gets the crown, right? Um, and mm-hmm. that means what Herena is essentially saying is that, you know, anyone who lusts for her wrongly <laughs> is the one who gets punished, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, and ostensibly if she herself were lustful, she would be punished. punished. Um, but, right. you know, um, forced compliance is the euphemism. It's a euphemism in Latin as well. Uh, uh, oh. um, necessity, you know, but essentially we are clearly sort of talking about rape, that that you still get the crown of virginity. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a really fascinating, fascinating statement because not everyone at Hrotsvit's time would have agreed with that. Right. It oh. is, Interesting. you know, it's the same as today. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Where in every age. Now I want to quote Buffy <laughs> into every age. Someone <laughs> is born. No. Um, right. Into every age. <laughs> there are born people who believe that, you know, women are not just property. Um, and into every age, there are born people who believe that they are. Right. Um, and so Rotsvied, of course, is writing at a time she's in Gandersheim. You know, the, obviously Gandersheim is f- yeah. full of women uh, who definitely believe that yeah. women deserve more than just to be married to men because none of them are, mm-hmm. right? Sure. That being said, you know, it's definitely a time when plenty of people did think that if a woman slept with someone, even, right, if she was forced against her will, that it didn't matter, right? Once you are no mm-hmm. longer a virgin, even in a very technical or whatever sense, that's it. Right. And Hrotsvi is mm-hmm. saying, no, <laughs> that is not what that means. Right. And lots, yeah. you know, this comes up every time there's a trial today and someone who, you know, sure. should have gotten way more time gets off or gets six months or whatever. Right. And people say, oh, but he has his life in front of him. Um, you know, there's the whatever. I'm not going to quote this stuff. We can put it in the notes if we want to. But the horrible things people say. <laughs> right. And compare the man yes. compared to the woman, right? And um, as though she doesn't deserve consideration, or you know, um, but also that then mm-hmm. she is looked at, you know, she is shamed. One of the reasons women frequently don't take these things to court, right, is because the woman yes. is always shamed, and right, all of those things. Um, and so Harina here is refusing to be shamed, right? Essentially, she does not care what everyone else thinks or says, right? She is saying. Even if this happens, you still get the crown of virginity if that's, you know, what you deserve. So that's a really mm-hmm. sort of fascinating um, comment, right? Um, and the the Latin word that's where I said it sort of means produces or begets, parit, is the same word um, that we get partum, birth, like postpartum, hmm. right? So there's okay. very much a sort of wordplay on, right, sex, of course, produces birth, right? <laughs> produces punishments, yes. Yeah, but in this case, right, lust produces punishment, mm-hmm. but, right, something that, if it's rape or if it's forced, you still get the crown of virginity, mm-hmm. right? A different, yeah. So this is a really sort of fascinating comment from Hertzfeed. 
uh, and is part of the sort of, right, the culmination of this play that is really about reclaiming the place of women, right, reclaiming the idea of them being lascivious. Um, another word that she actually reclaims, which is very funny, because, of course, it would go on to continue to be um, a very, very difficult word for women. Um, but that's the word witch. Hmm. Yeah, maleficus. And one of the words that the men, including Dulcetius, used to refer to the women is witch, witches. And Hrotsvit is, again, obviously using it, right, these women have this sort of power, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> because they're, they're sort of empowered by the divine, by their own sense of, you know, what's right and what's good. But the men perceive that as witchcraft. Right. And again, hmm. that's a word that is obviously still used today, which yeah. is another one of those words that I didn't list in my previous list, but could have. Right. Sure. And so, right. So Hrotsvit sort of reclaiming all of these things for women. Um, but in this comedy, right, um, that has this great sort of, you know, physical moment, Lotso in the center where this man who's trying to most these women instead is the one who gets sort of made fun of. Mm hmm. Right? So she's staging all of these things. And at the end, Harina is taken off to be killed. And then the men who are supposed to take her off come back confused. Um, and they met two other guys who are like, oh, we'll take her from here. And the, you know, the guy in charge is like, what? I didn't send any two more guys after you. Oh. And so then they're <laughs> even more confused. And of course, right, you realize those two other guys were angels. Ah. And they flew her up to the top of the mountain, and nobody else can figure out how to get up to the top of the mountain. <laughs> uh, so they have to shoot her down with arrows. Um, and so that's how she goes. Which, of course, is our final, final metaphor about sort of male assault. Mm -hmm. Right? But it does not silence her. Right? Um, she still has some stuff to say. <laughs> uh, which is fun. And she actually gets the last word of the play. Oh, nice. Before dying of being shot by arrows. Yeah. Um, so again, right, the sort of commentary male assault cannot cannot silence women. Nice. And this is why it's a comedy. Yay. Yes. <laughs> so, all right. Um, that is Rhodes Feet. We spent the whole episode on her. Because... We sort of thought we would. I mean... Yes, she deserved it. Because she's awesome. And did I mention she is our first named playwright in Western Europe of the Middle Ages? Yes. Amazing. Yeah. And also, she's a woman. Yep. I'm just saying. Oh, and also, the Gorilla Girls, who are a fantastic and fun gorilla art group mm -hmm. of women, <laughs> um, they have proposed what they call the Hrotsvit Challenge. Okay. Which is that plays should, you know, plays by women and people of color and, you know, interesting stuff <laughs> should be done instead of, you know, just more plays by white men. <laughs> um, and so they were like the first group, right, or university to do a play by Hrotsvit that they'd come to a special performance for them. Oh, um, that's And nice. lots of universities have, in fact, this was already some time ago, and lots of universities have done things like this in mm -hmm. the ensuing years. There has been a very much a sort of interesting reclaiming of Hrotsvit, both because the realization that she's great. Sure. And also the realization that her stuff clearly is stageable and was supposed to be staged. Mm -hmm. And the topics are obviously very, very timely. So, yeah, it's definitely a sort of major commentary, though. But that was their sort of, right, they called it the Hrotsvit Challenge. And I think we've talked about them before, because we've talked about their um, campaign about just to get women artists 
right into museums. <laughs> yes. Now, most of the nudes, most of the nudes are women. Like 85%, right? But only like 5% of the artists in the modern wings. Right? So they're not even asking for the ancient work. Right. But Hrotsvit is a great reminder that there actually were plenty of women before the modern era who were doing this work. Yes. I'm always so excited when I come across one of them. Mm-hmm. Especially like... I think, you know, early Renaissance, Belgian, Flemish style. I don't know. I I really like portraiture like that. And uh, every time I come across one of them, I'm always very excited. Mm-hmm. Because if you take an art history class, they don't mention them. Nope. Which is ridiculous. There were tons of women. Mm-hmm. I know. You read Jane Austen, and you're like, if all these women are drawing, why don't we see all of their art? Right. Well, it turns out a lot of their art actually is around. Mm-hmm. But nobody talks about the fact that it was done by women. Yeah. Right? Unless you're getting a specific tour. They're like, oh, yes. Female artist. Female artist. You're like, yeah. oh. It's just like, you know, stuff stuff in somebody's house. Mm-hmm. House meaning like, you know, if you live at Downton Abbey or something. Like, right. People, people who live in houses like that who have like a thousand oil paintings on their walls. Yep. And, you know, stuff isn't always signed or the provenance is not necessarily known until somebody wants to sell it anyway. Right. So, and then you'll mm-hmm. get like a little news story that's like, newly discovered painting by this person from, you know, right. 16th century Germany. and Right. Except it's not actually newly discovered at all. Yeah. It's been here the whole time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's very common. Yeah. I mean, I think we've also mentioned before, Virginia Woolf, anonymous, for most of history, anonymous was a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, there's a lot of truth to that, right? And the extent to which people used to assume, oh, well, it's a, you know, of course we know it must have been done by man. But honestly, if Hertz feet hadn't attached her name, and we didn't know specifically she was from Gandersheim, a lot of people would probably have assumed it was a right. man, you know? Even when I was starting writing, I still had the sense that if you were submitting your fiction to journals that if you had a male name or a mm. ambiguous nom de plume yes that you would be more successful than if you were writing under a female name mm-hmm. and like that actually like i write under e.h lupton and that's why yeah was that i wanted to disguise disguise yep. my gender to some extent and now yep. like think of all the georges in a lot of women. places there's there's a movement away mm-hmm. from that, you know, but for every journal you see that really does sort of focus on women's writing more, there's another one that has a little blurb that says we encourage submissions from traditionally, you know, looked overlooked people like women and people of color and blah, blah, blah. And then you'll, if you look at their actual, yep. who they publish, it's still like yep. a lot of men. Yep. So... Yeah. And it's, you know, George Eliot, George Sand, there's, it's not uncommon. I mean, there have been a ton yeah. of them. And there are these sort of some rare moments, like the Brontes, you know, but a lot of times, you know, a first novel or something would be published without, without the name. And then it would do really well. Yeah. And then you could be like, oh, yes, by the way, this was written by a woman. Um, but also, mm-hmm. you know, like the Brontes, Jane Austen, um, they all had really supportive families. Right? Yes. Like fathers and stuff, you know, who are like, publish <laughs> my kids, you know. Yeah. Um, and that also 
yeah. elder brothers in both cases, yeah. I think, mm-hmm. too. Yeah. But that also makes a difference, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, like Mary Shelley, obviously, like, she came first of all lineage, right? I mean, her mom, right? Yes. Mary yeah. Wollstonecraft. Who's already famous. Yes. But then Mary Shelley also, of course, did have a husband who was known for writing. You know? <laughs> yes. Whatever. P.B. Yes. Shelley. <laughs> some guy, some random dude. No, I kid, for those who are listening. I kid, I no. kid. I learned about him from an Ogden oh, Nash poem. Well, that's exciting. Yes. <laughs> no, yes. he's great. I love him. His poems are amazing. Speaking of poems, we talked about poetry. We didn't mention Shelley. Yes. He's amazing. I mean, Byron's my dude, but I love Shelley. I thought you were going to say Ogden Nash is amazing. I was like, yeah. <laughs> Ogden Nash is also fantastic. Yes. yes. <laughs> we also hadn't mentioned him. But, you know, it is sort of funny that, like, sh- you know, Mary Shelley also was taken seriously. But you have to imagine a little bit of it is because the mm-hmm. men around her took her seriously. Yeah. Right? So much as one loves Shelley's poems... Uh, one is also glad that he did take yes. his wife seriously. <laughs> um, because that's that's a good thing, right? Um, but stuff like that is definitely, um, you know, the Rossettis. You know, so, yeah, there are tons of women. I could keep naming them. We're going to we'll, leave off we, we for now, but, yeah. But, yes. Um, but, you know, for example, I did just put together sort of for my faculty cohort or whatever, um, other people in the faculty, a list, I put together a list of all the things that I teach frequently. So it is, there's a, you know, a few Google Docs going around the internet of, um, where people are just collecting mm-hmm. things, right? So, like, plays of the modern era written by people who aren't white men, right? Um, or if they are white men, then they're not straight, yeah. or <laughs> they're trans, or whatever, right? Um, so just a, a big list of stuff. Um, I put together just a smaller list of things that I teach frequently, and it was broken up by um, sort of right, disability, um, race, different things, religion, um, sexuality, mm-hmm. gender, right? Um, just so everyone would sort of see, right, this, these are all the things that I teach a lot. Other people are free to, you know. But I, and I made it modern specifically. I was like, if you want the historic list, that's different. But here's the modern one. Um, but it is a really sort of interesting case because... Um, I think a lot of these things, my list is not Mm -hmm. unusual, right? You know, there's some things on it that are very new, so people might not have heard of them. But the things on it that are not new are not Mm -hmm. unusual. I mean, they're not hard to, I mean, sometimes they're sort of hard to find, but that's not what I mean. They're famous, is my point. Um, But even so, right, people who work in the industry today and teach, right, today, um, may not have heard of a lot of these things. And that is much sort of mm-hmm. more worrying. Right? Because how how do we expect other people to have heard of these things if the people who are teaching them mm-hmm. haven't? Yeah. Right? Um, so when you said, like, you know, there are all these people out there, why don't they get taught? You know, some of it is just the fact that institutions are self-perpetuating. Mm-hmm. People didn't learn about these women in their own classes, so they don't put yeah. them in their classes. I mean, I guess that's the right. sort of thing like, what when you're taking AP English, and you have whatever, a very recent mm-hmm. English grad stu- teacher 
uh, who reads from her undergraduate class notes for some of the things, it's one thing. But like, oh, yeah, no. <laughs> not that I'm speaking from mm-hmm. personal experience. Uh, it was otherwise very fun. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry, I don't want to throw anyone under the bus yes. for crimes committed, you know, 20 years ago. But um, yes, no, cool. you know, yeah. you hope that by the time people get to the PhD level, they're, you know, what is it? You told me this, that if I wanted to write, I had to read in my field. You, like, yep. Um, <laughs> which is true, yes. that you just, you have to, if you want to, you know, do this thing, mm-hmm. you have to read broadly. And for all the people that I see yep. who are, like, posting on their Instagram feeds, this year I'm going to read 20 books by women or whatever, and you go like, well, right. you know, uh, really? But it's useful in right. that if you see lists like this, then it, it gives you somewhere to right. go, right? Like, it's yes. much harder to do yes. a, a Google search as I think I recently was doing, like, um, African science fiction. And then you go like, Ooh, well, yes. yeah. Right. So um, it's harder, you know, it's yeah. harder to narrow it down, but when you have some somebody's curated lists, even if it's not all to your taste, like speaking for myself that I just read stuff that appeals to me and not trying to keep abreast of the entirety of literature as one would if one were teaching. Right. You know, it gives you somewhere to start, which is great. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I have two fields to cover. One of them is medieval. Mm -hmm. And I do obviously theater and gender and various things around their religion. Um, and then one of them is and theater I do globally, right? And then one of them is modern theater, right? Theater I cover as fully and entirely as mm-hmm. I possibly can, right? From the ancient to the modern around the world. <laughs> We've done an entire series of basically yes. 10 shows on this or we will yes. have by the time we finish. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it is. it does very much mean that you're sort of constantly reading and seeing and um, that being said, I also do think that a lot of these lists, or when people say things like, I'm mm-hmm. going to read 20 books by women, I feel like a lot of them probably have, you know, there's certain names or certain books, maybe not all 20, but probably half of them, that they have been told about for mm-hmm. a decade, and they've never actually read them. Sure. Right? And now they're like, I am going to read this because maybe I should. You know? And you wish that they'd just yeah. read it to begin with because someone recommended it. I've been feeling that way about Wuthering Heights lately. You know. I'm not sure. We'll see. We'll see if I get there. <laughs> but <laughs> that's hilarious. I mean, that's a good one. Yeah, I gotta say, I love Wuthering Heights. Is a fun like one. to some extent. I love gothic novels and romances and whatever. So I think you like it. Yeah, but it's definitely like it is the epitome of all of those things. <laughs> well, of both of those things, it's it's like the the climax. Of gothic romance, really. Yeah. I mean, where are you going to go from there? For real. And it's oft-parodied, if we may say. Yeah. I mean... So... <laughs> it's it's beloved. Mm-hmm. It's definitely beloved. Yes. Yes. Um, but yeah, it is true that, like, I, for one, read very... I, re- I read relatively slowly. Part of my problem mm-hmm. is I read, like, four books at a time, which is not great if you ever want to finish a book. Um, right. But I keep lists of books that I'm planning to order or books that I'm planning to read. And so sometimes things get put on the list and then they come off of it, you know, a year or two later. 
you know, it's a right. slow process. So. Right. Yeah. Which is totally fine. Yeah. Um, and it is, you know, if this gets people to read things that they have sort of heard about and now they're willing to give them a try, yeah. that's great. Yeah. Right. Um, but there is something to be said for, um, you know, it's not even just, we had this discussion, right? And it's, it's partly the sort of being educated, but also, um, that everyone is a part of this, mm -hmm. right? So some of the tech people were sort of like, some of them were very much on board, but some of them were sort of like, well, you know, we just build things. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's nothing gendered or whatever about that. And they're like, well, but you build things from different cultures and, in you know, mm -hmm. and there are differences, right? Um, and so someone said, for example, like, you know, Japanese woodworking frequently, you know, is it's one of the cultures where you will use join things so that they fit together. Yeah. You don't necessarily use screws or right metal pieces or stuff like this, and the and um, someone else was like, "Well, yes, but when we build something for the stage, it just has to look that way. It doesn't have to be that way." And I said, "Yes, but first of all, you explain to them that it has to look that way because this is how that culture does it, and secondly, <laughs> um, you acknowledge that you are not sort of creating it correctly." Mm -hmm. Right, that you're doing a sort of quick and dirty version for the stage, um, and that that is distinct. Yeah, right. The West is not superior. You know, the work is ultimately probably inferior, really, but it only has to last for a month or however long right. the production is, and it just has to look like this from the audience. But it has to look like this because of these things that were important to this culture. Yes. <laughs> right, and you cannot do it in such a way that they think that the Western technique is somehow better. Right? The Western technique is just the one that they know, and therefore the one that they can use if they can mask it. Yes. But even then, it's kind it's a little bit of a problem. Mm -hmm. Right? It is a little bit of a problem. That should be acknowledged. Yeah. Um, because it's a, you know, masking, right? This is a problem. This is colonialism. Yes. Right? 101. <laughs> um. And so, and so just even sometimes changing the way people look at things a little bit, right? Um, and sort of having them acknowledge that sometimes the way they look at things are from a specific perspective that mm -hmm. could be shifted, right? Yes. Yeah. So. All right. Hurts feet. Yes. She's awesome. So on that note, I'm going to bring this all to an end. Um, thank you for joining us. And thank you to everybody who has followed us on Facebook or left us a review on Facebook or iTunes. Um, you guys are great. Please tell a friend if you enjoyed our podcast. We have a contact us form on our website, and you can also email us at questions at askamedievalist.com. Until next time, everybody uh, keep washing your hands and fight the good fight and uh, keep it medieval. Ask a Medievalist is a production of This Can't Be That Hard Studios and is not endorsed, acknowledged, or condoned by Virginia Commonwealth University or any of its constituent departments. Our theme music is Veni Veni Venias from Carmina Burana by Carl Orff, performed by the MIT Concert Choir and licensed under a Creative Commons attributional non-commercial license version 3.0. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, why not tell a friend?
For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at www.askamedievalist.com. And if you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at askamedievalist.com.